Let's give attention to God's word from the book of Judges, chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah, but his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem and Judah and was there four whole months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having a servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. Then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread, and afterward go your way. So they sat down, and the two, the two, and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night and let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. Then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart, but the young woman's father said, Please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look. The day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow go your way early so that you may get home. However, the man was not willing to spend that night. So he rose and departed and came opposite Jabus, that is, Jerusalem. With him were the two saddled donkeys. His concubine was also with him. They were near Jabus, and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, and let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. So he said to his servant, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And they passed by and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to go into lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. Just then, an old man came in from his work in the field at evening, who also was from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? So he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem and Judah. Now I am going to the house of the Lord. But there is no one who will take me into his house, although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant, and for the young man who is with your servant. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house and gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house, that we may know him carnally. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now, humble them, and do with them as you please. But to this man do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was, till it was light. 
When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up and let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey, and the man got up and went to his place. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and divided her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Judges 19. Let's ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come to such a grisly and solemn portion of your word, we pray that you would help us to approach it in faith, to know that here too there is something that we need to hear. There is instruction, there is edification for us. Help us, O Lord, then to receive it in faith, to be edified by it, and we pray that you would preserve us from such things happening in our sphere of influence. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Some people believe that this is the most gruesome, the most horrible passage in the whole of the Bible. And you can understand why when you just think about the plot. There's a domestic dispute. That domestic dispute is apparently patched up, apparently reconciled well. The reconciled couple heads out for home. There's a little bit of distress as there's no hospitality, but then that problem is solved. Things seem to be on the upswing until they take a catastrophically dark turn. Now, as we read Judges chapter 19, it probably reminded you of another chapter 19 in the Bible of Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19 is a lot better known. Genesis chapter 19 is when angels came to visit Lot in Sodom. And there was a similar scene with the men of Sodom pounding on the door, demanding for the strangers to be brought forth in order to be humiliated and abused and mistreated. And Lot makes a similar offer that he'll give up his daughters instead of giving up the men. But in Genesis 19, the visitors who have come are angels. They're able to strike these wicked men with blindness. They're able to pull Lot back inside. They're able to get him and his daughters, although ultimately not his wife, safely out of Sodom. And then there's judgment. Fire is rained down from heaven upon people who behave in that way. But in Judges chapter 19, the visitors are not angels. And there's no intervention. There's no fire from heaven. There's no blindness. The wicked men have their way, at least partially. And what winds up happening is that this young woman is gang raped to death. That is a pretty horrible story, isn't it? It's not fun. And that's one reason it's a little bit difficult to preach from this passage. I mean, there's many reasons. One reason is the commentaries that usually are very helpful and very insightful have a really hard time with this passage. Some of it, I think, is that people don't want to pay attention to it, so some kind of skate over it pretty quickly. Another reason is that those who do pay close attention to it can get so derailed by the circumstances by thinking about the awfulness of what happened that they lose a little bit of their interpretive focus on why is this here in the Bible? 
What are we supposed to learn? Well, clearly in this passage you have themes of hospitality. You have the theme of marital conflict and reconciliation. You have the theme of sexual abuse, of open wickedness in a city, of unashamed hostility. And as we carry on by God's grace into chapter 20 and chapter 21, you'll see the need to do something about it. You'll see guilt by refusal to turn over the evildoers. And you'll see people coming up with very bad patchwork solutions to problems that have been created. So these are challenging passages in more ways than one. Some of the things that would need to be dealt with in a fuller exposition maybe would be better held over until Sunday school. At this point, I feel like I owe everybody about 900 Sunday school lessons with how often I've had to say in a sermon, well, maybe we can talk about that more in Sunday school sometime. But certainly with this one, I'm going to go ahead and add to my deficit. We may have to talk about some of these things in Sunday school at some point. For today, what we want to do is kind of try to understand the chapter as a whole, understand that it's part of a bigger story that's being presented here, and then draw some lessons, some applications for us. Now, this chapter is part of a bigger story in two ways. One, of course... It's going to carry on in chapters 20 and 21. And it's interesting if you look at it from that standpoint, what starts off with a conflict between two people. There's a man and his concubine, and the concubine goes away. Well, that escalates into a civil war and the near extermination of a whole tribe. Well, that's part of the bigger story. But that bigger story of chapters 19 through 21 is part of the bigger story in the book of Judges. And that bigger story we find in chapter 17 through 21, where you continue to have this refrain that there was no king in Israel. And that's how this story is introduced, chapter 19, verse 1. It came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. Now, the argument is not that if there were a king, these things would not happen. The argument is that even in the absence of a king, these people can corrupt themselves. They can lead themselves astray. The wickedness here is not arising from the top. It's bubbling up from the bottom. And that, of course, has been part of Judges. God's people need a deliverer anointed by the Spirit. But all of the deliverers are more or less inadequate. Some of them, like Samson, are very inadequate. None of them can do the job. Why do the people need such a leader, such a deliverer? Well, what are they like? This is what they're like. The echoes of Genesis 19, the echoes of the story of the angels at Lot's house in Sodom are not accidental. They are there on purpose because the author of Judges is showing to us that now we have Sodom 2.0 and it's inside the boundaries of the people of God. Why do we need to know all of that? Well, we need to know all of that so that we will be realistic about ourselves, so that we will focus our hope on somebody who is not like this, so that we will learn to turn away from all false deliverers and turn to the only true deliverer. So let's explain briefly some of the features in the text and then draw some applications. 
Whenever you have a story like this, it's significant to notice what is emphasized, whether it's emphasized by repetition, whether it's emphasized by being given special prominence, sometimes it's emphasized by an editorial comment. There are several things that are emphasized here. You might have noticed as we were reading through it, for instance, that the donkeys keep being mentioned probably more than would seem strictly necessary. But you also notice that a lot of the chapter is taken up with a plot or a subplot that doesn't seem to go anywhere. So here's a Levite, and the previous story was also about a Levite, wasn't it? So you have two stories about Levites. None of these people are named. We don't find any names in this whole section except for the name of the high priest towards the end. Why are they not named? Because this could have been anybody. It wasn't something unique to this guy or to this person. This could have been anyone or just about anyone. Here's a Levite. And he lives in Ephraim. Now that also connects it to the previous story where Micah's house was in the country of Ephraim. And here too, there's a character from Bethlehem. In the previous story, the character from Bethlehem was the Levite, Moses' grandson, who was looking for a place to live. Here, the character from Bethlehem is this concubine and her dad. They're from Bethlehem. So you have a similar motion, only in opposite directions, from Ephraim to Bethlehem, from Bethlehem to Ephraim. These stories are related. They're showing us the state of society. And this, this story is anonymized so that people will see themselves in it, so that we won't think, oh, this only happens to such and such, so that we'll see it as something more general, as something that is at least a possibility. Well, the Levite has a concubine, and what exactly that means is open to a certain amount of disagreement. I think one of the plausible suggestions is that this is a wife who did not bring a dowry with her. In other words, she didn't improve the financial situation of the family with what she brought with her when they got married. And to that degree, then, she's a little bit of a second-class wife, you could say. Well, it says in our translation that she played the harlot against her husband, but that's not the usual expression. It's not the way we normally find that expression in Hebrew. So some people have guessed that maybe it comes from a different root word that means to be angry. So maybe all it's saying is she was mad at him and ran off home to dad. Okay, the text doesn't put a lot of emphasis on that. Did she behave badly? Did she have good reasons for running away? We don't know. All we know is that he waited four months and then he took a servant and two donkeys and he went to get her back. Well, taking a servant and two donkeys implies some investment into it. And when she saw him, she brought him into the house. She welcomed him in. She was apparently at a point where she was ready to be reconciled because she received him. She brought him in. And then her dad was very happy to see him and obviously hosted the Levite generously. He kept him for three days, pressured him to stay a fourth, tried to pressure him to stay a fifth. Well, there's something about hospitality to learn in all of that, but exactly what is hard to say. There's also something about procrastination, but I don't think that's the main point of this story. Like, this is not in the Bible to say, if you have to make a trip, start first thing in the morning. Don't waste time and hang around for a late lunch and then leave in a hurry. 
You could draw that lesson. But we really don't want to say, well, this wouldn't have happened if only they'd left early in the morning. We can speculate about that, but we don't know that for sure. They lingered in Bethlehem, and then they set off for home. They got to Gibeah. They were welcomed by an old man who was not from the place. He owned a house there. He worked in the field there, but he was not a Benjamite like the others. He was roughly from the same territory that the Levite inhabited. There again, they received hospitality, and even the donkeys were included in the hospitality. But then, of course, the atrocities began to multiply. And this is where we see it's really not a good idea to approach this passage and say, okay, well, who's the good example that I can imitate here? Nobody. You cannot imitate anybody in this passage. Please do not propose anyone here as an example for imitation. Obviously, there's individual points where everybody is not completely wrong all the time. When the elderly gentleman welcomes them into his house, okay, that's good as far as it goes, but that doesn't make him a good character. Obviously, the wicked men of the city who went to sexually abuse guests in their town, that's pretty bad. That's horrifying. That should never happen. And the fact that it happens among the people of God doesn't make it any better. That only makes it worse. The man who offers to give up a couple of women instead of the man who's come to visit him, well, I don't like that. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's appropriate. And the man who throws his concubine out of doors so that she can be mistreated all night long and then lies down and goes to sleep. And when he gets up in the morning and finds her lying on the doorstep, says, get up, we got to get moving. I don't like him either. I don't approve of any of these people and I hope you don't. This is not a good situation. So there's how many atrocities here? Well, there's the atrocity of the people in the city. There's the atrocity of the man who's willing to sacrifice his daughter. There's the atrocity of the man who does sacrifice his concubine. Then there's the atrocity that she's carved up and sent around. And I mean, I can understand why he did that. He needed something of shock value so that people would pay attention and would finally take this issue seriously. But still, what a horrifying thing. It's absolutely appalling. You understand why there's not a lot of sermons on this passage. Well, what do we do with all of that? You're victimized by a crazy pastor who believes in preaching the whole of Scripture. What are we going to do with this passage this morning? Well, one lesson here. In terms of the catechism, the Bible teaches us the greatness of our sin and misery. Can you read this passage and not see the greatness of sin, of our sin? And notice, this is a Hebrew book written by a Hebrew prophet, included in Hebrew scriptures. And who does it condemn? Who does it put under the microscope? The Hebrews. Now, on the one hand, then, what do we learn from this? We learn that God through his prophets, is honest about his people's failings. Failing is a, is a mild word for this. 
he's honest about his people's atrocities. We need to learn that. We need to learn that even with regard to cases of sexual abuse, like what happened in this chapter. There has been a lot of information recently about churches where there has been an instance of sexual abuse. And we understand these things do happen among the people of God. It's not good, but there are wolves in sheep's clothing who come in with a predatory mindset. Okay. But you know what's worse even than that is when that gets covered up. When people don't do anything about it. When it's brought to the attention of the proper authorities and they sit on it. They sweep it under the rug. They protect the perpetrator. That's even worse. God was not like that. Why do we know that these things happened? Because God inspired a prophet to write it down. Because God preserved it for us. This is a scripture for the Christian church. And one of the things we learn is that if God is honest about the atrocities of his people, we should be honest too. We do not need to cover up our sin. Proverbs has some strong words about that. The one who covers his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. We have a choice. We can cover sin up or we can confess it and forsake it. But we cannot do both. So lesson number one here is we need to be honest. We need to be honest as God is honest about the greatness of our sin and misery. As a church in the United States, as a Reformed church, as this congregation, we ought to be honest on all of those levels about where we have gone wrong, what we have done that we shouldn't do, what we have not done that we should do. The Bible leads the way in that example of honesty. There's another lesson here, of course, and that is that these things do happen. And we need to be realistic about that. If somebody has a story of sexual abuse, they ought to be listened to. They ought to be heard. It ought to be investigated. And if it's true, it ought to be addressed. This is a hard subject. I'm aware of that. It's a painful subject, and if it brings up painful memories for somebody, I understand it's not my intention. But what I want to be clear on the basis of this passage, God saw that. God remembered that. There was a lot of indifference. There was a lot of unfeeling people. There was a lot of sin. There was a lot of cruelty. But God saw, and God was not indifferent. We know about this story again because God recorded it for us in Scripture. So there's several lessons there. Sexual abuse has no place in the church, and yet it does happen. If it's happened to you, I'm sorry. You do have compassion. You can bring that up. You can tell people about that. In this passage, maybe others didn't care. Maybe her own husband could sleep through the night. But God saw what happened to the concubine. And God made sure we would not forget. Because it's in his word. 
In future chapters, we'll see something about the response to this. It was not left unaddressed. And that's also part of what needs to be clear for us. If such a situation should arise, if we should be informed about something where we have jurisdiction, we must take action. We cannot share the guilt of the perpetrator by shielding the perpetrator as well. Now, there's also a lesson here for us about humility. It's easy for us to think, well, this happens with other people. You know, that was sort of the Levites thinking. They're right there by Jerusalem. They could have gone in and found lodging for the night. He's like, oh, no, I'm not going to go stay with the pagans. We got to go to an Israelite city. Well, how'd that work out for you? It's tragic, but the church is not always a safe refuge from the world. There are wolves inside of the church. There are predators inside of the church. That's not what we want, but we need to be realistic. We need to acknowledge that that happens. We need to be humble. We need not to think we're automatically better than everyone else in every possible way. That's not Christianity. This passage teaches us the greatness of our sin and misery, and we need to know what happened among the people of God can happen among us. We are not the people of God because we're wiser, because we're better, because we're smarter, because we're cleaner, because we're healthier than other people. We must know the greatness of our sin and misery so that we can be on the alert, so that we can be prepared to address things. Because of this, we need to be prepared for church discipline. We need to be ready to look somebody in the eye and say, you are no longer welcome here because your behavior is a danger to others, for one thing. We have to have the tools at our disposal to do that. But we also need to be realistic about this, to say, if it hasn't happened among us, if we haven't experienced it, why is that? It's because God has helped us. It's not because we're intrinsically better. We need to know the way that the men of Gibeah got to be how they were. That path is right at our doorstep. We could go down that way as well. There, but for the grace of God, go we also. So we need to learn realism. We need to learn humility. We need to learn compassion. We need to learn justice. But then we also need to learn where do we look for deliverance? Who alone can rescue us from this depth of sin and misery? It's hard to know which is deeper in this passage. The misery of the young woman is pretty deep. Oh, but so's the sin that brought about that misery, isn't it? Who can bring us out of that? Who can rescue us? Oh, not some political king with his own agenda, but the king of hearts, the one who can change our whole approach, the one who could reach into the heart of somebody like this Levite and give him compassion instead of whatever that was. The Lord Jesus Christ is the answer to this. The fact that abuses happen in the church is not a reason to give up on the Lord Jesus. It's a reason to cling to him all the more strongly because only he can change the hearts. Only he can uphold justice. Only he can bring us out of this estate of sin and misery where things like this can happen and can happen to anybody. We need 
the Lord Jesus today. Amen.